ETF Prime is hosted by Nate Geracine, president of investment advisory firm, the ETF Store. This program is for informational purposes only and does not constitute investment advice. Investing in ETFs involves risk, including potential loss of principal. Any past performance figures discussed are not necessarily indicative of future results. The ETF store is not affiliated with Vetify or any of its affiliates. Vetify's participation in this program should not be construed as an endorsement or indication by Vetify of the value of any ETF store product or service. Visit ETFstore.com for more information. The future is fast approaching and artificial intelligence is positioned to fundamentally change not only society, but financial advisory. Join us on August 30th for Vetify's AI Symposium, where experts and thought leaders dig into AI and explore its potential impact. Go to vetify.com to learn more. Now it's time for ETF Prime, where we discuss everything you need to know about exchange-traded funds and the world of investing. Whether you're an investing expert or just starting out, Nate will help you get up to date with what's happening on Wall Street and show you how exchange-traded funds can help lower your investment costs, reduce your tax bill, and allow you to take advantage of investment opportunities around the world. And now, the host of ETF Prime, Nate Geraci. All right, joining me will be Gerard O'Reilly, co-CEO and chief investment officer at Dimensional, who a few weeks ago, they caused uh, quite a buzz when they filed an application with the SEC to launch ETF share classes of their existing mutual funds. Some $400 billion in mutual funds, by the way, that uh, could be eligible here. And I think most of you know, Vanguard had a patent on this share class structure. That patent expired in May. And so now, theoretically, anyone can use this uh, if they can get the SEC on board, which that looks like it's going to be a lot easier said than done. And I'll get into that with uh, Gerard. But prior to Vanguard's patent expiring, there uh, was actually another asset manager in PGIA that filed to use this share class structure as well. And with both PGIA and Dimensional, they're seeking to use this for active funds, whereas Vanguard is only using this for index-based funds. And so that's another piece to the puzzle here when it comes to the SEC. But there's no question in my mind, if the SEC does get comfortable with this, it's going to be a huge deal because the share class structure offers another way for asset managers. I would say especially managers with large mutual fund assets and 401ks, it allows them to very easily launch those strategies in ETFs. And so if you think about this, they can have the best of both worlds, right? They can keep that 401k business intact while also pursuing the much higher growth ETF space. So I'll get into all of that with Gerard and also perfect timing to visit with Gerard anyways, because Dimensional is set to hit a $100 billion in ETF assets literally any day now. So we'll uh, discuss that as well. Also joining me this week will be Compson Silipachai, partner at Sage Advisory, who has over $22 billion in uh, assets. And Compson plays a key role in managing their ETF-focused portfolios. So we're going to discuss the types of ETFs he's using, 
what he's seeing in the markets right now. Uh, we may touch on ESG, which is a focus uh, of Sage. Should be interesting. I always love visiting with ETF portfolio strategists. Now, to start this week, I have on the line with me Vetify's Laura Krieger. Of course, Laura is editor-in-chief at Vetify, and we have uh, several ETF topics to get into, so let's do that now. Now we're joined by the experts at Vetify, a new data analytics and thought leadership company that is transforming financial services from an industry to a community, one relationship at a time. There's a couple of different ways to slice and dice these various ETFs. They can hold what are called total return swaps. Expect the unexpected. Laura, thanks for joining me. How have you been? I've been good. How are you? I'm doing fantastic. Uh, we're, we're ending the uh, summer here, so I, I see the fall on the horizon. Yeah, the, the light is there at the end of the tunnel. Cooler weather ahead. Yes. Uh, so look, I have a uh, small grab bag of topics for us this week, and I thought let's actually start with dimensional filing to launch ETFs as a share class of their mutual funds, because I have to assume uh, Gerard O'Reilly is going to play it pretty straight when he joins me, which I completely get. And so I thought maybe you and I could have some fun speculating on this a little bit. Uh, I, I guess first, do you want to offer a quick explainer on this structure? I think most listeners understand it, but you know I always like to uh, cover the basics. So let's maybe start there. Yeah, I don't want to um, uh, belabor the point for sure, uh, since most folks, uh, uh, you know, we've covered it in the past and, and um you know, we uh, uh, most folks are, are fairly familiar, but the idea is that ETFs, um, you know, generally speaking, are offered uh, as a standalone structure. But with uh, the Vanguard products, the Vanguard model, um, you, you have these ETFs offered as a share class of a mutual fund, an existing mutual fund. So they're, you know, how mutual funds have many different share classes. In this case, ETFs um, are just one of many, right? So you can choose the ETF share class or you can choose the institutional shares or whatever. So um, it, it, it offers it as a, um, I guess, a, a flavor of the existing fund. So it has the same portfolio, the same managers, the same ever, uh, you know, this, that, and the other thing. But um, what makes it kind of powerful is that um, you can, uh, as the manager, um, you know, the, any rebalancing activity or any activity that you're doing to um, for the mutual fund, you can also do that for the ETF version at the same time. Yeah, I think that's really well said. I mean, if I were to boil it down, that uh, multi-class structure, it can provide uh, benefits to each share class, right, and allow mm -hmm. different types of investors to access the same fund. So there can be different fees and, and expenses. But the idea, I, I kind of alluded to this at the top, maybe the mutual fund share class is better for, say, a 401k plan, whereas the ETF structure might be better for an end retail investor. And there's some things you can debate in there, but that's the general idea. Um, so look, I, I mentioned at the top, Vanguard has only been using this structure for index-based funds, whereas PGIA and Dimensional, and I'm assuming some others will jump in as well, they want to use it for active funds. And so I'm curious what you think the chances are that the SEC is actually going to allow that. <laughs> it's it's kind of hard to say, to be completely honest. Uh, you know, I'm not, uh, as much as I like to, to try and be the SEC whisperer on this one, I'm a little in the dark. I, I kind of have been looking uh, around and haven't seen, uh, you know, definitive one way or the other on what the SEC will say. You know, there are different types 
I guess this what it comes comes back to is that there's different types of active management, right? There's there's the Kathy Woods of the world, which are extremely high conviction, lots of turnover uh, style strategies, very just um, you know very uh, uh, well active, I guess active active for active, right? And then there's a more um, you still high conviction take, but it it's a uh, it's more rules based. There's more, um, less of a, a personal opinion, I suppose, or a personal, um, you know, conviction of the manager, and more of a an active management process associated with it. So, um, you know, if if uh, someone like a star active manager like a Kathy Wood had filed this structure, I think you know the, the it might be a little bit more clear cut. But dimensional, uh, you know, is is probably the most stalwart. Uh, you know, one of the most stalwart active managers in the space. Um, they're not, you know, they, they clearly are prioritizing good outcomes, good investor uh, outcomes. That's not to say that, you know, others aren't, but it's just a, a different style of active management that might align more with, um, you know, the SEC's priorities, which are protecting investors and making sure that investors are, um, you know, being, uh, I guess, taken care of uh, and not being um, hung out to dry or whatever. So, like, you know, I, I realize that's sort of a, a a vague answer, right? Maybe not um, as as clear cut, but I, I do think the SEC might have some um, uh, some some issues with kind of the the trade, like questions about how trading flow is going to work and and how um, turnover might work and so on. But um, you know, overall, uh, I think there's probably a good chance. And if anybody could do it, it's probably dimensional. You may not know this. Do you have any idea if Vanguard tried to get approval to use this structure for active funds in the past? Because Vanguard, I, I don't know if everybody realizes this, they have a large stable of actively managed mutual funds. And so mm -hmm. e theoretically, this could help them there as well. And I agree with everything you just said. And I'm sure Gerard's going to speak to this as well, that there are different flavors of active. And you think of somebody like Dimensional, that's a very systematic approach. They they do you know try to have lower turnover in the funds, those sorts of things. I would put Vanguard in that category as well, at least with a low turnover. Um, it's it's more, if you have a spectrum, I would say it's more down the, the, the path of indexing than your high active share, Kathy Wood, that you were mentioning. But um, any idea Vanguard try to get approval for this, uh, for active funds? I don't have that information off the top of my head, no. Okay. Um, well, let me ask you this. Let's say the SEC does not allow this structure for active for whatever reason. Do you think they should still allow other issuers to use this for index-based funds? Because I'll tell you, I've said publicly, if they don't, from my perspective, then it seems like the SEC is basically extending Vanguard's expired patent. Yeah, and I actually think you you know you said it best up at the top. There's a real use case um, that is is powerful for investors here, right? So, a 401k structure, um, the mutual fund works best for a variety of reasons, in fractional shares and and the existing infrastructure and all of that stuff. Um, mutual funds work best in a 401k. Uh, ETFs work best in a different type of account. So. Um, it just gives investors more flexibility and the um, capability to express uh, their 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 opinions, their uh, their investment um, desires, their their strategies that they have um, in a variety of different vehicles. I think that the SEC is probably. I mean, again, I'm not an SEC whisperer here, but I I, I do uh, think that the SEC would be more inclined. 
uh, if nothing else, to grant it for an indexed uh, ETF. Um, you know, Vanguard's had the patent for a while and that patent has expired. My sense is that the SEC would be okay with letting uh, other indexed, at the very least, other indexed uh, issuers um, for those very reasons. On the topic of what the SEC is and is not uh, comfortable with, let's uh, move on with my grab bag here. Do you want to guess what the next topic is? Oh my gosh, is it Bitcoin? <laughs> <laughs> Bitcoin uh, ETFs. So uh, I'm sure you saw this letter Grayscale sent to the SEC last week where it was kind of odd. They were essentially saying the Coinbase surveillance sharing agreements that seem to be the big game changer with all of these recent spot Bitcoin ETF filings. They're saying that's not enough because Coinbase isn't regulated. And their point was, is that if the SEC changes their mind on that, that wouldn't be fair to somebody like Grayscale since the SEC has denied their past proposals. And, you know, the other part of this, of course, is Grayscale is still saying, look, you approved futures-based Bitcoin ETF, so you should approve spot ETFs as well. That's the thrust of their lawsuit, which uh, we should be hearing the outcome of that, uh, I would think, any day now. But what, what did you make of that letter? I actually think Grayscale's right. <laughs> I think they, I know that there's a number of filings that are, are out, uh, you know, as you said, uh, that are pointing to Coinbase as the, you know, the solution to the surveillance question which has uh you know the sec has consistently raised for every single filing that has come across uh its desk the question has been um you know, one of uh the the authority and the credibility of the surveillance mechanisms is is the surveillance uh that the sec needs to see strong enough uh is it deep enough is it um you know verifiable enough i suppose and, uh, you know, folks like Matt Hogan and others have uh, Matt Hogan from Bitwise and and uh, other, um, you know, crypto uh, enthusiasts have really um, done a lot of work to show, uh, you know, that there's um, surveillance, you know, there's appropriate and enough and sufficient surveillance in the markets. Um, but Grayscale is absolutely right. Coinbase is not a regulated uh, company in this way. And so if it's um, providing surveillance, uh, we're just kind of taking Coinbase at its word. Is that really good enough for what, you know, all of the to satisfy all the pushback that uh, the SEC has given over the years? Um, I, I don't uh, think they're wrong in raising that point. And it's certainly one that if um, you know, does get approved, like, or rather, if these these filings do get approved, um, it would certainly make me scratch my head about the consistency of the argument. Well, the other piece here, too, at least my read into the letter, is Grayscale is clearly concerned about um, the timing of potential approval and that if the SEC yeah. is changing course on this and let's say they approve wh whoever, BlackRock or ARC or, or some of these other issuers first, that the SEC would be playing, quote unquote, kingmaker and it wouldn't, yeah. you know, wouldn't be fair to, to Grayscale. Now, one of the interesting things that I don't know gets talked about enough in that scenario is even if Grayscale is not first to market. And, and just for the record, I think I think with how long this has gone on, I mean, I have a soft spot in my heart for all of the issuers who put in a lot of work uh, to, to, to solving this problem over the past decade or so. And I, you know, I would like to see that hard work rewarded. But I think at this point, the most fair thing to do is just approve everybody at the same time. But what I was going to say is the kind of wild card here is that GBTC is something like a $20 billion fund. Uh, and so if they are able to convert, they're automatically going to have a leg up in the market, right? Now, we'll, we'll see how much of that $20 billion is still there if they aren't 
you know, if, the, if there's a period of time between the first Bitcoin ETF approval and then when they can actually, uh, you know, convert. But uh, that's the other interesting thing here. But I think their their main point is they don't want the SEC playing kingmaker. And so we'll, we'll see how all that plays out. Um, OK, I want to close on a, a lighter note. I'm going to reach into my grab bag of topics and I'm going to pull out new ETFs. And I always like talking new ETFs with you because I feel like you have a real uh, curiosity around how new ETFs fare once they're out in the wild. And so I thought, let, let's just quickly take this in two pieces. And so first, are there any new ETFs that have uh, surprised you in terms of their uh, success so far this year? Like anything standing out to you on the positive side uh, when you look at assets, performance, anything along those lines? Yeah, absolutely. So there's, there's actually two. Uh, I mean, there's been tons. Let me back up a second. There's been tons of launches this year. A lot of closures. Uh, closures have been very brisk this year, but certainly um, there's been no slowdown in the number of ETFs that have come to market and uh, filings that issuers are putting uh, into the market. So uh, if you want to keep up to, I, I got a plug, if you want to keep up with this, uh, our managing editor, Heather Bell, um, has a weekly column that releases on Friday. It's called This Week in ETFs, where she sums up the, the most recent launches and the filings and such. It's, it's a really great little resource if uh, you know, you're like me and you kind of want to go through the, the filings and stay up to date. Um, so you know, from that, there are two ETFs that really caught my eye. And one of them is the JP Morgan Sustainable Municipal Income ETF, which is ticker JMSI. And so this was a conversion uh, of a mutual fund uh, earlier this month, I want to say. And already, uh, you know, it took some assets along with that conversion. It's uh, at about, um, I'm using logically to look this up in the real time, um, about 200 million, 240 million in assets under management right now. And so this is a, um, this caught my eye because, uh, you know, you talk to ESG aficionados and people who are really true believers in the ESG, sustainable investing, responsible investing, whatever we want to call it today. Um, and there's always been one common um, theme that has come up in those conversations of like what's missing in the market. And one of the things that's been missing that I hear over and over again is a sustainable approach towards municipal bonds. So municipal bonds, those are the bonds that are funding um, initiatives at the local and state and sometimes even the city level for things like infrastructure projects and um, you know fleet outbuilds and so on like that. Um, it's also the bonds, those are also the bonds that are going to uh, be deployed to, or the funds are going to be deployed towards making more energy efficient fleets or greening the infrastructure in the city, you know, upgrading, uh, you know, facilities, uh, water treatment plants and so on. And that's the stuff that's really, truly on the ground impactful when it comes to climate change solutions and climate change mitigation. Um, you can't talk about, you could have as many solar farms as you want, but if you're not um, building out the green infrastructure at the town, city, and state level, then it's not going to do you any good. So it's really kind of cool to see that there are these products now for uh, sustainable municipal bonds. They're prioritizing these um, bonds that are being put towards uh, sustainable initiatives. And um, I think that's a really uh, 
kind of a green field. Um, you know, JP Morgan came out of the gate strong on this one. We'll see if this becomes the, um, you know, the, the strongest in the class, the, you know, the, the, the biggest and, and, um, you know, largest, uh, ETF. It's, it's got some, uh, a really strong start behind it though. So I, I'm keeping my eye on that one. Another, yeah, the other one, uh, I won't um, belabor the point here, but this one is from Global X. It's the Emerging Markets Great Consumer ETF, EMC. And the thing that caught me about this is that the theme of this product is on that, uh, you know, the emerging, the consumer of the emerging markets, right? The, the whole demographic shift that we've heard so much talk about over the past 10, 15, 20 years about how um, the Chinese consumer, the Indian consumer, the Brazilian consumer is going to be the next wave of um, consumption growth and um, uh, demand growth um, for companies and stocks all over the world. It hasn't really come to pass. I mean, has, yes. I'm not saying that um, the emerging market uh, demand isn't driving a substantial amount of growth for companies worldwide. But the idea that the emerging markets consumer has, uh, you know, some, um, there's some, some, some uh, alchemy there, um, you know, in terms of a, an investment theme hasn't really played out. Um, however, this one, this fund is already at 355 million. It's just chugging along. It seems like it's uh, accruing assets. Maybe Global X has really landed on the right theme uh, of pure play um, stocks and a pure play approach. So I'm keeping my eye on this one as well. All right, I'll offer you up too. I just looked at the list uh, this morning. So the first one is the Innovator Equity Defined Protection ETF, ticker TJUL. This just launched a couple of weeks ago. This is the uh, the buffer product that offers 100% downside protection, which I have some uh, strong thoughts on, which we'll talk about uh, at another time. But that's already <laughs> nearing 50 million in assets, which I thought was pretty good. And then the other one that jumped out at me uh, just the sheer level of assets was the Wisdom Tree Voya Yield Enhanced U.S. Dollar yeah. Universal Bond ETF ticker UNIY. That's already at nearly one point two billion dollars. That one came screaming out of the great for, gate for sure. We we have a minute left. Uh, what about on the negative side? So any new launches this year that you thought I, I don't know it might do better at least asset wise. Gosh, that's always a really hard question to answer. And I'm going to sort of um, tiptoe back from it, to be honest, because I think in this particular market, uh, one thing that I have noticed is that just because an ETF doesn't come out of the gate strong doesn't mean that it's not going to pick up steam later on. And, uh, you know, the old uh, adage or the rule of thumb that we had 5, 10, 15 years ago of like, if it doesn't gather 100 million assets right off the gate, um, you know, it's it's probably going to limp along until it's closed. We're seeing more and more uh, ETFs just kind of take their time, bide their time. And then a year out, two years out, three years out, suddenly it, it kind of just screams into motion uh, and, and starts accruing assets. So um, I'm going to I'm going to reserve answering from that one. You align very well with your colleague, Todd Rosenbluth, because earlier <laughs> in the year when we were talking about the uh, the Morgan Stanley ETF debut with the Calvert mm -hmm. ETFs, uh, and I was a little bit impatient. I thought the assets would be higher. Uh, Todd compared me to a child like crying in the backseat of the car. Uh, not patient. But here, here's what I'll do. Um, since I asked you, uh, you know, for an answer to this question, I'll give you mine, which is 
the inverse Kramer tracker ETF, ticker SGIM, because that only has about 3 million in assets. And I'll be honest, I thought I'd do a lot better now. Um, now, obviously, performance hasn't helped. So that thing is down 15% since its March uh, launch, while the S&P 500 is up you know, 15% during that same time. I just thought, given the nature of that ETF, there'd be more interest from retail. So uh, I, I know some people say that's a gimmick ETF. That's fine. I'm not here to talk about that today. I just thought asset-wise, it'd be uh, further along. But um, Laura, always so much fun. Excellent stuff as always uh, this week. Thank you for joining me. Thank you so much for having me, Nate. That was Laura Krigger, Editor-in-Chief at Vetify. The future is here. Introducing BNY Mellon Investment Management thematic ETFs built to deliver differentiated risk-adjusted returns through areas of societal growth and progress and powered by our multidimensional research experts' 20-plus years of thematic investing experience. ETFs trade like stocks are subject to investment risk, including possible loss of principal. To learn more, visit im.bnymellon.com today for important disclosures and prospectuses. My next guest is Gerard O'Reilly, co-CEO and chief investment officer at Dimensional, who currently offers 31 ETFs, just about to hit $100 billion in ETF assets. Of course, they manage over $630 billion in fund assets globally. And again, I have to point out, on the ETF side, they have done this in less than three years. They didn't launch their first ETF until November of 2020. It's truly remarkable. And Gerard is now joining me from Austin, Texas. Gerard, welcome to the uh, podcast. It's a pleasure. Thanks, Nate. Good to speak with you again. And so it was a pleasure uh, uh, chatting with you. Well, first of all, uh, congratulations on uh, getting to that $100 billion ETF mark. Again, very impressive. You're now the largest actively managed ETF issuer by assets. Are you surprised by uh, how quickly you've reached this point, or was that just all uh, meeting expectations for you and the firm? I would say we're pleased, uh, not massively surprised, and that's in part because of how we decide to launch new strategies. We work with financial professionals, and those are independent financial advisors or advisors who work at large organizations or investment committees of institutions. So we get a good sense, Nate, of what they're interested in, what they want before we launch a strategy. And after Rule 6011 came about, the ETF rule in 2019, we knew that we could launch something that fit within our investment framework, where we could add value, and there wasn't much like it out in the marketplace. Uh, so we had high expectations. I think that we've met them. What we're pleasantly surprised about is that we've been able to engage with financial professionals who we previously couldn't because they used all ETF models. And as soon as we had ETFs, uh, they were kind of interested in, in adopting those within their practices as well. So it's been a good journey. Uh, we're, we're pleased, uh, but we did have high expectations. As I look at your ETF lineup, clearly your systematic active approach is resonating with investors. Uh, but I also think your ETF price point is playing a big role here. So I show your average uh, ETF net expense ratio is about 25 basis points. 
any additional color you would offer on either of those points in terms of what's been driving your success? I think that we've always striven to have reasonable fees for the value that we add in our investment strategies. And we always try to look strategy by strategy. Uh, are we in the lowest morning star decile with, expect, with respect to expense ratios? And then uh, we try to drive down other expenses and, uh, and so on. Ultimately, we don't want fees to be the reason an investor chooses one of our mutual funds over one of our ETFs or vice versa. Uh, so when we're, when we're doing that, uh, we look at our ETFs or mutual funds, if they're similar strategies with similar services, uh, we target a similar fee. Uh, and I think that uh, we're always responsive to the market in terms of making sure our fees are competitive. So I think that has been uh, one of the things that uh, advisors have found uh, appealing is that we believe that we have value for the fees that we charge, and the fees that we charge typically are in the low in- lowest Morningstar decile of our peer groups. We're obviously going to discuss the ETF share class structure uh, today, but one of the ways that you have grown so quickly in the ETF space is by converting several mutual funds to ETFs. I believe around $40 billion in conversions over the past uh, couple of years. Do you still see that as an option moving forward, or do you think you've grabbed all of the uh, low-hanging fruit here? Yeah, you're right, Nate. We're almost $100 billion and $40 billion in conversions across uh, seven mutual funds to ETFs. You know, when we were targeting uh, our tax-managed and tax-advantaged funds initially, uh, those were the ones that we choose, chose to convert uh, from mutual fund to ETF because 99% plus of the assets were in taxable accounts. And so we had the infrastructure set up uh, to manage standalone ETFs and realized that we could enhance uh, those strategies by converting them to an ETF format. And that's why we targeted those seven initially. What we we continue to do is have conversation with financial professionals, and we're not hearing as much demand from those about full conversions. What we're hearing more demand around is the ability for them to choose for their clients uh, to exchange mutual fund shares for ETF shares, which is kind of one of the, the rationales about the uh, filing for the ETF share class. All right, so perfect segue here. Let's get into that. Uh, Dimensional did recently apply to the SEC for ETF share class exemptive relief. And I saw a piece that you wrote on this the same day as the uh, press release where you said that at Dimensional, uh, you have a saying of do the right thing, do it the right way, and do it right now. And we can talk about the first two parts in a moment, but I'm curious, why is now the right time for ETF share classes of your uh, mutual funds? Why now is is a good question. And back in 2019 and uh, into early 2020, after the ETF rule was adopted, and we thought that ETF rule brought uh, a lot of, uh, of good things to the ETF landscape and the ability to innovate and bring product to the market more quickly, uh, we engage with the SEC uh, about ETF share classes because the ETF rule specifically omitted uh, ETF share class relief and had some notes about why uh, they thought the SEC thought that was better handled through the uh, exemptive relief process. Uh, at the same time, we also had decided that we were going to launch standalone ETFs and we had decided that we were going to target those seven tax managed strategies for conversion. Uh, So while we had productive conversations with the SEC in in early 2020, uh, we knew that the path to standalone ETFs and the conversions was more certain. Uh, So we focused on on that. And over the past almost three years, I think that we've demonstrated uh, the ability to implement a systematic, active approach uh, very, very efficiently in an ETF wrapper. And so 
over the past, I'd call it six to 12 months, uh, as we engage with the financial professionals, there's been a lot of demand for more strategies uh, in mutual funds and ETFs. And we have about 110 mutual funds, along with the 31 uh, ETFs that you mentioned. And so there's a lot of demand for more strategies in both wrappers. Uh, there's demand for the ability to exchange shares of mutual funds for ETF shares. Uh, and our viewpoint has always been more vehicle agnostic. We want to make each vehicle as good as it can be. And so we decided now's the time. We have demonstrated that we can do this well in mutual fund. We've been doing it for 40 plus years. In ETFs, we've been doing it for almost three years in the active transparent space. Uh, and it's time to combine uh, the both. Uh, and so it's listening to clients and uh, using our experience over the past three, three years or so in uh, the active transparent ETF space. Gerard, my sense is that uh, many investors understand how the ETF structure can help mutual fund shareholders. I would say primarily on the uh, tax side, right, because of the way ETFs can purge low-cost basis holdings. And there are potentially ways to lower transaction costs as well. But from the SEC standpoint, they have previously expressed concern over the potential of ETF shareholders being negatively impacted by mutual fund shareholders. I believe they call this uh, share class subsidization, where a, a very crude example would be the mutual fund share class has uh, significant outflows. And so because of that, ETF shareholders actually have negative tax consequences or higher transaction costs. And so I'm curious, how are you attempting to address those concerns with the SEC? So there's a, a very important part of your statement there, which I think uh, most investors understand the benefits of share class structures. And that's our predominant approach is focus on the benefits. Almost all activities come with some cost, uh, but there are usually benefits associated with the activity. For example, Nate, you drive to work, you put petrol in your car, it's some cost. Why do you do it? Because the benefit of going to work and earning a living outweighs that cost. And so what the SEC have pointed out in their uh, kind of notes to the uh, Rule 6C11 adoption are some of what they call the cross-subsidization and the costs. So if you look at our exemptive uh, application for uh, relief for share class ETFs, it's a simple argument on uh, how do, you, how do a, a broader pool of assets is an efficient way to serve many investors. And we highlight the benefits for mutual fund uh, shareholders and the potential benefits for ETF uh, shareholders and the potential benefits for both. You highlighted a couple that we uh, put in the application for exemptive relief of mutual fund shareholders, lower portfolio transaction costs and greater tax efficiency. I think that's uh, particularly important for the way that we invest, Nate, because we do a little bit of rebalancing every single day which means that we're using cash flows optimally, whether those cash flows come from a client uh, or an investor or those cash flows come from a corporate action. We're always investing those cash flows in the securities that are most underweight in the strategy on that day, given what we uh, want the strategy to look like, and selling from the securities that are most overweight in the strategy on that day. Uh, and I think that the whole create-redeem mechanism and how we've used custom baskets helps us uh, the, the, it would help us, the, the mutual fund uh, shareholders. Um, other benefit that we uh, could potentially get when we come to later is the uh, relief requested to allow exchange of mutual fund shares for ETF shares. Now back to your, for the ETF shareholders, what are the potential benefits? I'll go back to those daily cash flows. Part of what we've done, Nate, over the past few years is that we've built 
a lot of infrastructure internally and both with APs such that we use the baskets, the in-kind baskets of securities that come into the fund or go out of an ETF to help rebalance. So we're always doing a little bit of rebalancing. And uh, the way that we build the baskets, if we have some cash flow coming into the mutual fund share class, that actually gives us more flexibility in how we build those, ba- uh, those baskets. And we think because of the efficient use of how we use cash flows in the fund will allow us to do an uh, even better job with the baskets and how they create and re- redeem the baskets. There's also the very obvious benefit that you add a share class to an established fund structure. You get those economies of scale and the benefits associated with them straight away, the cost efficiency straight away. I'll give you an example. If you look at our core two strategy, it's the biggest mutual fund that we have. Uh, Its expense ratio is about 18 basis points, other expenses too. Uh, But that has had about a 35% reduction in the expense ratio over the past 10 to 15 years. Why? Because as we've grown, we've renegotiated fees and so on and so forth, gotten economies of scale and passed those benefits on to the end client. When you look at the combination of an ETF and a mutual fund share class, those economies of scale accrue to both. And now you have new channels. So mutual funds can service retirement investors. ETFs can service uh, investors that are investing uh, in taxable accounts. You have ways to pool different types of investors so that both mutual funds and ETFs can benefit from those uh, economies of scale. So I think that we're focusing on the benefits. The cost part, Nate, there we're just highlighting uh, all the various different costs uh, that we incur inside our funds and showing that they have been well managed and are reasonably low. So what we understand from the SEC and conversations with the SEC staff, uh, the three areas that they've highlighted are brokerage uh, and other costs associated with uh, cash flows from uh, from mutual fund uh, shareholders, a cash drag associated with investing the cash or distributed with capital gains. I'll just end on, on this note here. If you look at that core two fund again uh, and you look at the fiscal year 2022, the commissions, total commissions for all portfolio turnover was 0.001% of AUM. Hmm. So the benefits of implementing the strategy relative to the commissions, we think that is a positive net benefit. If you look at the average uninvested cash over the five years ending June 23, 0.08%. So it has full exposure to the equity markets. And if you look at the ratio of uh, post-tax, post-liquidation returns to pre-tax returns, uh, over the 10 years ending 2022, it's been about 82%. And that's on par with ETFs uh, that are total market ETFs, like firms like Vanguard, iShare, Schwab. So again, we're going to highlight the benefits and point out that these costs uh, that uh, we incur inside the funds to accrue those benefits uh, are well managed and, in our view, uh, the net benefit is, is positive for this type of combined structure for both mutual fund shareholders and ETF shareholders. Gerard, simply a fantastic explanation of everything going on behind the scenes here. That was a, uh, a five-minute master class on this structure. I appreciate that. Um, a, a few minutes left. Let's say the SEC does get comfortable. Um, can you provide any sense as to how many mutual funds you might seek to pursue this ETF share class structure on? So if the uh, exemptive relief is granted as we have requested, 
then we've requested it for the full mutual fund complex. So that's all of the mutual funds, uh, U.S. mutual funds that we manage. And there, uh, the thought process would be uh, we would work with the mutual fund board and we would work with the financial professionals that we engage with all the time. And that would help set our prioritization. And that's how we've decided which ETFs to launch over the past number of years, which mutual funds to launch over the past number of years. And what the board would like to see is uh, kind of case by case, uh, what are the data and the evidence that there would be a positive net benefit for current mutual fund shares and potential uh, future ETF uh, shareholders. And then what we'd like to see from uh, the financial professionals that we work with is which strategies would be most useful for them. Uh, so I think that that process would have to happen before, after, uh, uh, if we were to get the exemptive relief granted. Uh, but over time, I would expect a broad range of our funds, uh, if indeed we got the exemptive relief uh, granted, to have a, uh, an ETF share class uh, for those benefits that I've just mentioned. And I, I just want to hammer home one particular point, which you've alluded to a, a couple of times. If that relief is granted, you would allow investors to exchange their dimensional mutual fund shares for ETF sh uh, shares, correct? There would be a straightforward process to accomplish that. If it's granted, as we've requested, that is our objective, okay. then uh, the work would have to begin with various different platforms and so on to make sure that it can be seamless uh, for the financial professionals that we work with to do that exchange. And before I let you go, uh, what about more broadly across the ETF space? Uh, if you're able to help blaze this trail, do you expect to see a lot of other fund companies pursue this path as well? I would, actually. You know, the portent of exemptive orders varies, and I think this one uh, can carry a large wind of change. Uh, because the way that we've put together the request for exemptive relief is we're relying on things that already exist. We're relying on Rule 6011, and there's been 800 active transparent ETFs launched in the last three years using that rule. We're relying on one-way exchange rights. They've been around for 20 years. The SEC has granted that relief. We're relying on existing procedures of board oversight uh, to uh, manage the cross-subsidization and make sure there's net benefits. So we've made a blueprint that we believe uh, many others can follow. And that could change the direction of the industry uh, because, Nate, you've observed many times the cash flows from mutual funds to ETFs. And this would be a way for the industry to avoid all the trading associated with people wanting an ETF uh, when they're already in a mutual fund and have additional growth for well-established funds in a much more efficient manner than what uh, we may have uh, happen uh, today. So I think that there's uh, potentially large implications for the industry, but for the better. I think this, has, this structure has benefits uh, for all investors if implemented in the right way. Well, Gerard, really appreciate the uh, time today. Again, just a fantastic explanation behind the scenes. Uh, congratulations on all the success with the ETF lineup. Again, by my numbers, I show that you are set to hit $100 billion. It could be today, so maybe uh, plan on popping some champagne. But uh, best of luck as you pursue this uh, ETF share class structure. Thank you for joining me. Thanks, Nate. Always a pleasure chatting with you. That was Gerard O'Reilly, co-CEO and chief investment officer at Dimensional. Motley Fool Asset Management asks, do you like the low cost and convenience of passive funds, but want stock picks that have the potential to beat the market? The Motley Fool 100 Index ETF could be the solution you've been looking for. Motley Fool Asset Management took the 100 top-rated stock picks selected by the analysts at the Motley Fool LLC and put them all into one simple low-cost ETF. The ticker is TMFC. 
For more on this fund from Motley Fool Asset Management, visit fooletfs.com slash ETF Prime. That's fooletfs.com slash ETF Prime. This week, certainly not least, is Compson Silipachai, partner at Sage Advisory, who manages over $22 billion in assets. They're one of the largest tactical ETF portfolio managers in the country, and Compson focuses on research and portfolio strategy there. Uh, he's a member of their investment committee. And interestingly, prior to joining Sage, Compson spent nine years at the Teacher Retirement System of Texas, where he was an investment manager in their asset allocation group. So unsurprisingly, uh, Compson is also a chartered financial analyst. He's a CFA, and he's now on the line with me from Austin, Texas. Compson, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me, Nate. Glad to be here. All right, so we're going to get into uh, how you're currently managing ETF-focused portfolios, but I thought just briefly here, give us a little background on Sage in terms of what Sage offers, who your typical clients are, those sorts of things. For sure. So Sage, we're a privately owned investment management firm um, focusing primarily on two things, fixed income as well as asset allocation strategies. And as you said, we were founded in Austin, Texas, um, in 1996, and we started our ETF division in about 1998. And so um, in terms of clients, um, we really try to meet clients where they are. Um, one of our kind of key tenants and key value propositions is customization. Um, so in fixed income, we do quite a bit across the yield curve, liability-driven investment strategies. Within our ETF strategies, um, we have you know, a wide collection of strategies across asset classes and risk levels. So most of our clients, uh, firm-wide, are going to be institutional, but we have a really good-sized private client business as well. Uh, in terms of our you know, strategies on the ETF side, you know, really runs the gamut from you know, fixed income to equities to balanced models, as well as you know, purpose-driven models like things like income-focused models and cash balance. Um, and the way that we access ETFs, um, we are not issuers ourselves. Uh, we're open architecture. Um, and so we utilize kind of the existing ETF universe. Yeah, I mentioned Sage is one of the largest tactical ETF portfolio managers in the country. Do you also offer strategic models or is everything more tactically focused? Most of our assets are going to be, you know, what we call tactical. And the way that we define tactical is a little bit of a hybrid of a strategic and with tactical tilts. Um, and so our strategies are typically going to be categorized by the level of risk, um, you know, as defined by asset class weights, things like 60-40 and, and such. Over the long term, those, uh, those strategies will behave like the risk profile that they are ascribed to. So for example, the 60-40 strategy, over the long term, you're gonna get a 60-40 type risk profile. Um, where we are tactical, uh, we are gonna be overweighting, underweighting market segments, um, but it will be typically within a kind of a risk managed way within those asset classes. So for example, within equities, and we'll go into it a little bit later, but um, you know, we'll look at region sector style, um, overweight and underweight those, trying to really, um, you know, 
express our macro views um, within a risk managed framework. So we have a tracking error budget, so a risk budget around these um, asset class weights. So it's a little bit of both. Um, so we're tactical, but within uh, a risk managed bound. And you were alluding to this, but just to be clear, are ETFs the dominant investment vehicle across your portfolios, or does it depend on the portfolio? Just talk a little bit more about your ETF usage uh, specifically. Definitely. So within our asset allocation strategies, ETFs are going to be the the main uh, investment vehicle. Um, so in 1998, I think um, there were like sub 30 ETFs existence at the time. You know, we started to use ETFs as kind of bolt-on allocations to our institutional portfolios that consisted of fixed income. Um, we started our ETF strategies business at the time. Um, currently, you know, we've grown with that business. Uh, we've grown with that universe. Um, and so um, now the ETF universe is, uh, has involved into what we really consider the, the, public, the public asset class uh, investment universe as a whole. Um, and so we, we think that there's plenty of options within the ETF space to express really any view in public markets. And so with, even within our fixed income strategies, sometimes we'll use ETFs as market access vehicles as well. But for these kind of ETF strategies that we're you know, referring to in terms of the tactical strategies, the ETFs are going to consist, you know, there'll be 108 percent ETFs. All right, so let's get to the fun part now, which is if we start drilling down a bit further, I, I, I want to break this down into equities and fixed income, and, and let's start on the equity side. Just give us a feel for how you're managing that sleeve. What are some ETFs you're using, uh, and what are some of the primary considerations as you look to allocate to equities right now, given everything going on in the markets? Well, our process starts with the top down. So our investment committee, um, our senior investment committee, as well as our portfolio team, really determines our macro outlook. Typically, you know, we define it as three to six months out. And so, you know, what goes into that outlook, we try to group really our proprietary indicators as well as, you know, um, third party readings into four main buckets. So growth, liquidity, which is, you know, the same thing as policy, valuation, what is the market pricing in, sentiment, you know, is the market you know, off the reservation one way or the other. And so um, we look at those four buckets. We try to bucket, you know, really all kind of indicators within one of those um, one of those factors to give us a sense of where we think, um, you know, the economy is going, where we think liquidity is going, you know, what the market's pricing in. And then our portfolio teams will then express those within the portfolios. And so within the ETF process and within the equity process, um, you know, we express those obviously through ETFs. Our e our equity strategies are global in nature, um, and so we de invest across U.S. developed international emerging markets. And the tilts that we take around our ET our, our equity strategies um, are within region, country, sector, industry factor. Um, we primarily use index strategies, but um, you know, I think that. Over time, as active management grows, especially in, in equities, you know that share of our of our strategies will grow as well. And um, so we disaggregate that global index into various, um, again, region, country, sector, industry, and factor, and we select the best ones that we think will outperform, kind of on a three to six month period, kind of considering our macro view. And so right now, um, you know, we think that um, risk assets are are trying to really thread a, thread a really um, kind of specific um, thread a needle in a very specific scenario of a soft landing um, in, in a situation where 
you you have a hot economy um, that goes past uh, kind of a soft landing scenario. We do think that equities could come under some pressure um, if if labor market starts to weaken. We could see you know equities come under pressure kind of on the slowdown side, and so we think that um, you know equities are priced largely for perfection here. So. So position for more defensiveness um, in defensive sectors like consumer staples, healthcare, and then on, in the factor side, low volatility factors, which have underperformed significantly, particularly against some of the mega cap tech names. What about on the fixed income side? How are you viewing the world there right now? For sure. So it's really the same process, you know, expressed in, in a different, obviously, asset class and sector. So we invest across sectors in fixed income. Primarily, um, the aggregate index in terms of our our main benchmark, um, and so what we do is we disaggregate the ag. Um, we add some non-core sectors, things like high yields, um, as well as um, income-based sectors like preferred stocks when when appropriate. Um, and again, we have this macro view um, that that informs our view on interest rates, our view on credits, and across different sectors. So right now we're very light on credit risk, given you know we think that um, there's you know a heightened amount of uh, credit risk, um, not really priced into the asset classes right now. Um, overweight uh, mortgage-backed securities um, and um, long duration. So we think that you know with the Fed being done hiking, um, we're really in a, in a period where you could see interest rates you know over the next six months or so um, start to, to really grind lower. Thompson, just a few minutes left here. As I was thinking about our conversation and uh, given your background in the teacher retirement system of Texas and then also knowing that ESG is an area that SAGE specializes in, I I wanted to get your uh, thoughts on the ESG world right now, especially because it has become much more politicized, right, especially within Texas itself. So I'm just curious, how do you view ESG integration and looking at ESG ETFs within portfolios? What are your high-level thoughts there? Sure. We we do manage some ESG strategies as well within ETFs. Um, We launched those in 2016 as as those ESG ETFs really coming online, becoming mainstream. Um, And we think that you know, it was concurrent with some of the third party, uh, third party data providers coming online, um, giving you know the ability for for index uh, products to to really be launched um, that are you know kind of co-signed by these third party rating uh, firms. Um, you know, I think that the world has evolved. Obviously, you mentioned you know how politicized it's been. Um, but on top of that, I mean, I think that ESG really since 2016, there's been a lot of confusion as to kind of how to define ESG. Um, is it just alignment? Does it provide alpha? Um, how much risk are you taking? Is it you know specific to ESG or is it a different type of factor? And so what we tried to do really at the start was just to mimic um, our equity strategy, you know, express, can we express the same view? Do we, if we like value, we like a certain region and we like certain, um, you know, styles and sectors, for example, within fixed income, can we express that in an ESG um, oriented ETF? Um, that was really the first um, iteration of, of our strategies. I think the space have, you know, have evolved to um, include thematics. And so we started to include some of those in our strategies. Um, You know, I think that, you know, in terms of, um, you know, future uh, plans for for our strategy, I think that, you know, um, 
I'd like to see thematics really grow into um, kind of come into its own. Um, and, and instead of just buying ETFs that are, you know, rated, you know, a by a, a third party rating agency, can we express macro views on sustainability linked themes? So things like, um, you know, energy transition, there's been a lot of that coming out, but I think that, you know, I'd like to see more of that. Um, a concept that I'd like to see would be kind of ESG, quote unquote, distress. So are there companies that, you know, maybe not be, maybe are not rated highly, quote unquote, by some of the third party rating providers, but have a potential to really transform their business into something that is really more sustainable. And that generates some alpha for, for our end clients. Um, and so I think that, you know, that's really where the space is going. Um, you know, I think despite the rhetoric, ESG is it's going to be here to stay. Um, and I think that, you know, it's not going to be the dominant factor that, that, you know, I think the media and, and, and a lot of the industry, you know, made it out to be at the start, um, in 2016. But, um, at this point, I think ESG space laid a nice foundation and you're seeing it continue to evolve. All right, Thompson, before I let you go, one question I always like to ask ETF portfolio strategists is whether there is an ETF or ETFs that uh, you wish existed but doesn't. So is there something that you would like to see uh, launch that, that isn't currently out there? You know, I think um, this one's hard because the ETF market has done a really good job of addressing investor needs, especially in, in long-only space. I mean, alternatives, that's a lot harder to, um, to express in the ETF land. You know, I would have said, I think, three months ago that uh, I'd like to see more granularity in, in a fixed income. But you started to see, you know, quite a bit of, um, of innovation in that space as well. I, you know, you've had um, some of the folks on your podcast mention, you know, firms like Bond Blocks. There's been a lot of active uh, ETFs um, in, in areas like high yield. Now, now the investor really has a choice as to, you know, an active manager and, and for example, a high yield that maybe will be more aggressive with the lower rated uh, credits. And there's some that are more um, kind of defensive, higher rated. So I think you're seeing a lot more uh, of a menu for, um, for, for investors within fixed income. Um, you know, I, I'll do a fun one here uh, for, um, for a product that doesn't currently exist. I, I think it'd be fun to have uh, an ETF, you know, with like, sports team stakes. I think that'd be <laughs> super interesting. Um, I think, you know, people would be really interested in that. And, you know, it does seem like um, that though, that that asset class in particular has done very, very well um, over the last 10 years. Well, Thompson, we'll have to leave it there. Uh, interesting perspective this week. Uh, really enjoyed connecting. Thank you for joining me. Thanks, Nate. Really appreciate it. That was Thompson Silipachai, partner at Sage Advisory. That'll do it for this week's ETF Prime. I want to thank one of our sponsors, Newberger Berman. If you would like to learn more about Newberger Berman, you can visit nb.com ETF. Next week, I'll be joined by Douglas Jonas, head of exchange traded products at the New York Stock Exchange. We're going to talk ETF education and also find out what he's watching for in ETFs right now. And then David Schulhoff, who is founder and CEO of MUSQ, is going to spotlight the recently launched MUSQ Global Music Industry ETF. Should be interesting. Until then, have a great week, everyone.